please turn with me in a copy of uh, God's Word to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. John 1, verses 29 through 34. Last Sunday, John the Apostle uh, introduced us to John the Baptist, and uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, John the Baptist's testimony to the identity of Jesus Christ here in John 1 verses 29 through 34. So let's uh, listen closely to the reading of God's word. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, what's wrong with the world today? That question is sure to get a lot of different answers, isn't it? People might say poverty, uh, some form of injustice. Others might say, you know, the problem's political, and so the solution's political. People might say war, terrorism, you know, what's going on in the Middle East, or Russia with Ukraine. Other people might say things like, well, the, the drug crisis. Fentanyl is now one of the leading killers in the U.S. in certain age groups. The migration crisis might come to mind. On and on and on we could go. Financial. You know, all I have to do is say the word inflation, and I'll probably see a bunch of nodding heads. Right? Um, educational. Medical. On and on we could go. But I wonder, how how would you answer that question? What's wrong with the world today? In the last century, around the middle of the last century, the Times, a newspaper in London, England, uh, ran a piece where they asked that question, what's wrong with the world? And there was an ongoing debate. They received several responses to that question. And one of the responses they received simply read, Dear sir, I am. And yours faithfully signed G.K. Chesterton. Some of you have maybe heard that story before, but, but you see what Chesterton was getting at in answering the question, what's wrong with the world? He, he, he was ready to say, me. <laughs> My own personal, moral, spiritual failure. That's where the problems of the world begin. We're uh, we're studying John's John's gospel together 
You remember, John was uh, an eyewitness commissioned by Christ to write about the identity and the significance of, of Jesus Christ. And last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist, who came announcing a whole new era, a whole new age, as the voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And so last week, I talked about new beginnings, new starts, uh, new eras, and I, and I acknowledge that we are, we are accustomed to hearing people make all kinds of promises about new beginnings and promises of change. I mentioned President Obama's presidential slogan, change, and the accompanying chant, yes, we can. Following presidential election cycle, we, we had President Trump promising to make America great again, and so on. The trouble is, as one succeeds another, and as each in turn make promises that repeatedly and inevitably come up short, we, we get what you might call fresh start fatigue or fresh start cynicism. And that can, that can lead people to disillusionment or lead us to seek more and more extreme solutions. And we see that kind of thing happening, I think, in our country today. And so as, as we work through John's gospel with, with John the Baptist heralding nothing less than the dawn of a new age, a radical new beginning breaking into this world, in answer to all of the promises of the Old Testament, I think it's time for us to try to do a little bit of explanation. What kind of new beginning are we talking about? What kind of new beginning is ushered in in the arrival of Christ? Well, John's gospel gives us the answer. And to really fully answer that question, we'll have to study the entire gospel together. But today, I want to have a look at verse 29. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in the last verse here, verse 34, John says, I've, I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So this new age, this new dawn centers on this individual who is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as the Son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to think about those two things together this morning, beginning with the first, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we need to remember that this will help us to to realize John the Baptist is, is really the, the last prophet of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. And so everything he says here is really drawing from this rich seam of God's prior revelation and explanation. And this, this first description of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world can really be divided up into three parts. So let's just take it piece by piece, thinking about the first part, the Lamb of God. And you probably know that language of the Lamb comes straight out of the Old Testament. And, and rather than you know, commentators get all tied up in knots trying to figure out which, which specific passage in the Old Testament about a Lamb is John referencing here, and, and I, I don't think we should limit ourselves to just one. I think rather 
John is drawing our attention back to the entirety of the Old Testament and the significance of the lamb being a sacrifice. That's really something when you think about, here's John the Baptist identifying and announcing Jesus, and he calls him the Lamb of God. He is essentially saying, this man is a sacrifice. A sacrificial lamb. Just think about some Old Testament passages with me for a few minutes. And go back at least as far as Genesis 22 with the story of Abraham being called by the Lord to offer his son Isaac as a sacrificial offering, as a burnt offering. You remember, you remember the words that we find in Genesis 22. They're, they're really striking. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son. Now, do you hear echoes there of Jesus as God's only begotten son? God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I can't think of the father's words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But back to Abraham, go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering. You remember Abraham, Abraham trusted God, even, even believing that, okay, if God's calling me to do this, he, he will, he'll raise Isaac from the dead because he promised that through Isaac's offspring, the promise would be fulfilled. So they're making their way up the mountain, Abraham and Isaac. And you remember Isaac uh, says, okay, well, here's the fire, here's the wood. Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham says the Lord himself will provide for a burnt offering. And you, you know how the story goes. Isaac, Isaac is laid upon the altar. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. And, and, and seeing that he would not withhold his son. At that moment, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham offered it in Isaac's Place. She knows a ram, not a lamb. Have you ever noticed that little detail? So this question is just kind of left hanging in the air in the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? And John the Baptist sees him and he points to him and he says, here's the answer to that question. Here is the lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. We could also turn to the original Passover when a lamb was slain, and you remember its blood was splattered over the doorpost, understood in, this, in the original Passover observance. And the lamb was understood to be, to be a kind of substitute, a, a covering for the family, so that, so that they were passed over in the judgment and were set free from their enemies. And then there's, of course, the temple, the tabernacle in the temple, and the whole sacrificial system, in particular the morning and evening sacrifices. Every day a lamb sacrificed in the morning and in the evening, a lamb without blemish being offered to carry sin. And that takes us to the second part of what John says, the lamb of God who takes away sin. In other words, John is helping us understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin, not by 
not by brushing it under the rug, but by taking it upon himself in order to come under God's just judgment. Remember the language of Isaiah the prophet, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised for our peace. He, he takes it away by carrying it himself. You know, if you were, if you were to go around uh, your neighborhood or some public place in our community and, and go around and ask people, how would you describe sin? Right, when you, when it, the, the basic level, the fundamental level, what, what is it? I, th I think probably a lot of people would quickly go on to name some of what might be considered the big, the big sins, right? Things like adultery and lying, cheating, stealing, murder, theft, those, those kind of things. But that's, that's actually not quite accurate, is it? It's, it's identifying the fruit, but it's not really getting to the, the root of what sin is. Sin begins with an attitude, a heart disposition of defiant, disbelieving disobedience. It, you get a picture of this in Genesis 3, picture of sin as Adam and Eve take hold of the fruit, which really represented you know, the rule of God and, 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 and was a test of whether the man and the woman would really, would really trust God, trust in his goodness and his benevolence and live life on his terms. And it's as if they said, you know, off with you, God. We don't want anything to do with your rules. And we're not interested in, in what you have to say. We'll, we'll get on fine without you. Right? Disbelieving, defiant disobedience is, I think, a good way of summarizing what is really at the heart of sin. And, and this attitude of defiant, disbelieving, dis, disobedience that, that is in our hearts is, is what warrants God's just judgment. And so, you, you see, for the Lamb of God to take away sin, it, it's not as simply as canceling it out like that with a word. It's, it's, it's not possible to simply take it away and wish it away. No, it means the Lamb of God must take upon himself and receive God's just judgment for our disbelieving rebellion against him. And, and that is what is pictured so vividly in the Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes sin away. A wrath-bearing, sin-satisfying, substitutionary sacrifice to die in the place of people so that we need never face the just judgment of God for sin. Now look at, the, look at the third part of verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I wonder if you noticed in the reading that, notice the singular there. It's not sins of the world, it's the sin of the world. And I, I take this to mean a, a reference to the, the worldwide scope of Jesus's sacrifice it's a, it's a it's a reminder that Jesus isn't for just one people group John John Calvin commenting on this passage says that with this phrase 
the grace of God is extended indiscriminately to the whole human race. And so world means you know, people without distinction. Of course, it doesn't mean people without exception. Because as we've already seen in John's gospel, some, some will not believe and some love the darkness. And as Jesus will teach later, some are not of his fold. Some, some remain in unbelief. Jesus takes away sin, not of every person, but of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But I wonder if you see what that implies about all people everywhere. It implies that everyone everywhere needs a savior who can take away sin, who can carry it away. Sin, right? our, our distrust, our Defiance, our disobedience, leaves us objectively guilty before God. And so we need, we need a Savior. We all, we all need to be reconciled to Him. We, we all need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to reconcile us to God. So you see, if, if the Savior of the world is a Lamb who takes away sin... It is a reminder to us, isn't it, that our biggest, deepest problem is not what's going on in some other part of the world or even closer to him. It isn't our social status. It's not our economic status. It's not our health condition. It's not politics. It's not finances. As important as all of those issues very well may be, your biggest problem and my biggest problem is identical. It's the same. It is that we are sinners all the way down and we need a savior who is able to cancel sin, who is able to take it away. Now let's just plug in what what John has been saying here back into the the larger context of these verses. John, John the Baptist comes heralding, again, a whole new era Again, we hear promises all of the time, fresh starts, and we might be tempted to say, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, not not, not falling for this again. No, says John the Baptist, because look, the whole Old Testament promises a lamb who can take away sin. But no, no lamb, no real lamb can take away the sin of a human being. And, And King David often spoke of a royal ruler who would who would suffer for God's people, a suffering king. But no king in Israel was good enough to suffer on behalf of another. Prophet Isaiah promised a servant of the Lord who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities on whom the Lord would lay the sins of us all. And you see, you see what's happening here now with this crowd come out to see John the Baptist, and as he's baptizing, he singles out this single individual, this single man. He points at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a momentous moment. It is an extraordinary event. John is saying, here at last is one individual who is qualified 
to remove God's judgment. Again, not by slipping it under the rug, not by wishing it away, but by taking it upon himself as a substitute. You remember what I was saying last week? John, John is the voice <clears throat> sent to proclaim that, that a great one is coming. Right? Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare this great processional highway for the Lord comes. But now we need to ask the question, okay, what will his coming be like? Why is he coming in the first place? What is the purpose of his coming? And we, we all know John 3.16, and we tend to not know John 3.17 as well, but you remember what John says there, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus has come to deal with, Friends, Jesus has come to deal with the real issue that underlies all of the other issues of this world. The biggest issue. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. See, the heart of the problem of our lives, and it's not just about puny you and me. The heart of the problem that lies at the disorder of the whole cosmic order is... The willful, deliberate, defiant disobedience of humanity. Our rebellion against our creator. Right? That, that act in Genesis 3 that, that has just rippled out into every relationship in the whole world. Like when you throw a stone into a pond and you see the ripples go out and... It covers the face of the whole water. In a similar way, the sin of humanity ripples through everything. But John is saying, look, look, here is someone who can actually do something about our biggest problem. Here's one who can take away the sin of the world. You see, there's one being introduced here. And we're going to, Lord willing, have the opportunity to see it develop throughout the rest of this gospel, but friends, he really does it. He does it. By his death and resurrection, he takes away sin and he opens up a way into a new world without sin. Now let's, let's move on here to the next part of our passage to see that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's the Son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is where we see even more of the, the nature of the age, the new age that Jesus ushers in. Verse 1 may seem a bit odd at first. John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You might, you might well, John, how did you, how did you not know him? <laughs> Your cousins, you grew up together, right? But you didn't what he's getting at there is he didn't know, not that he didn't know Jesus, human level. It's saying he didn't, he didn't really know who he was. That's why he can say, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Right? John has come calling people to repentance and has been baptizing. And he's, he's come to understand and see that the whole point of it all was to reveal Jesus, particularly at this moment when he was 
when he was baptized. But look at verses 32 through 34. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Things I want you to notice here. Notice, first of all, that word remain. The Spirit remained on him. Said twice in this passage. The Spirit descended and remained on Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, God's judges and kings had very specific role, not, not only to rule, but also to rescue. That's why in the Old Testament, kings are described as a kind of savior of the people. And they were identified, kings were identified by anointing by the prophets. And as they were anointed, as oil was poured out, so God the Holy Spirit came upon them, rested upon them. Now, one example of this, 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The same exact thing took place with Saul before David. But you see, an imperfect king, the Spirit did not remain upon him, but departed from Saul. Now you see the contrast to John. Look at John 132 again. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John is wanting us to understand is that as we, as we read the Old Testament, and we read the stories of Israel's kings, it's one long account of failure after failure after failure of earthly rulers. One fresh start after another. But none of them, none of them could deliver on this promise of a suffering king who rescues his people. That's why when you read parts of the Old Testament, you know, some of you, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, when you get to First and Second Kings this year, you might, you might just discover it's kind of depressing. <laughs> it really is. It's kind of depressing. Because it's one story of failed kingship after another. But here says John the Baptist, and as he, as he singles out Jesus, is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but here is one who is anointed by the Spirit of God, upon whom the Spirit has come and remains. In other words, John is helping us to see that this is God's anointed son who has been appointed as king to rule and to reign and to rescue his people. And this is why John goes on to say, I've seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. Just think about how some of the other Gospels tell the story of the ministry of Jesus after his baptism, after the Spirit has descended upon him and remained on him. He's driven by the Spirit, Mark says, into the wilderness where he accomplishes this, this initial victory in the wilderness as he's tempted by Satan. And then he enters into 
promised land, right? And, and he goes forth as a conquering king, marching into the land, proclaiming release to captives, casting out demons, loosing bonds, raising the dead, setting people free. And the message is that the king has come in the power of the spirit and things really are different this time. That, that, that something new is happening, I think, is also made clear by another detail in this passage, by the Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Right, why a dove? That's a question you have to ask. Obviously, it means something. <laughs> it's not insignificant. And we have already seen that basically everything John is saying is in some way connected to prior Old Testament revelation. And I think that is true here too. The Spirit coming down like a dove communicates radical new beginning, even new creation. Remember the first time we, we meet the Spirit in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 with the Spirit hovering over the waters of the new creation. You remember the imagery of the dove appearing in Genesis chapter 9, closely linked to the renewed creation after the dissolution of the flood. And in both cases, you see, newness is the theme. Jesus comes empowered by the Spirit of the living God to usher in something new. A new day has dawned in the coming of Christ. A whole new era begins. And John says something about it in verse 33. Take a look. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now maybe you're going to get tired of hearing me say this, but this too is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And I think it'd be helpful to look at one passage. So this is why I had us uh, read Ezekiel 36 earlier this morning. You can turn there again if you'd like. Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 27. We, we read these words. I will, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. What is Ezekiel describing for us? He, he, here is a spiritual operation that is going to be performed by the Son of God, whereby he will plant within his people the first fruits of the new creation order. He's promising ultimately, ultimately to remove 
everything that corrupts this world, all that is wrong with it. And God's son, the king, who will ultimately usher that world in, says Ezekiel, will take his people, wash them clean, and perform within them the equivalent of heart surgery. And then God will put his people in his promised place, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. Again, you can't live today without hearing people promise some new start, some new era, whether it's ecological or political or medical or technological. Time and time again, we find that they might introduce some kind of change into our lives, but ultimately it makes no real lasting difference, no substantial difference. Just, just think about the internet. <laughs> you know, what a new, what a new era we, we live in. But then also think about what splendid wickedness and evil it has simultaneously unleashed in the world. The Old Testament promises a new era, a whole new age. In fact, nothing less than a new creation in which sin is altogether removed, in which God's people are cleansed and enabled to dwell with God forever. And John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, brings all of these threads together and he says, here at last is the one who has come to deliver on all of those ancient promises. I can't, I can't wait to keep going in John's gospel to just see this week by week by week. Soon we will be we will be reading about Jesus presiding over a, a great supernatural wedding banquet where water is turned into wine. Why? Because the messianic age has begun. Soon we'll, we'll see Jesus rolling back death. We'll see him taking a man who has been paralyzed for his 38 years of life, dancing back home. We'll see Jesus standing before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, saying, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man who has been rotting for days comes out. And John is saying, look, here is the king. Here is the spirit-anointed king who rules and rescues God's people in the power of the spirit. Now, the new age hasn't come in its fullness yet. But the king of this new age has come. And he is the one who is able to take away your sin. He is able to perform this spiritual operation in your heart. He is able to plant the Holy Spirit within you so that you have the first fruits, a foretaste of the new creation. And Ezekiel spells it out for us. What does that look like in the here and now? It means now, now you, you, you don't want to rebel against God and go your own way. You, you, wanna, you want to walk in his ways. Your, your heart now beats for God. That, friends, is real change, isn't it? Listen to Ezekiel again. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you 
a heart of flesh. See what John the Baptist is saying? He's saying, look, I, I can splash some water on you, but I can only operate on the outside. But here is one. Here is the Lamb of God who can take away your sin, who can, who can cleanse you, who can operate on you internally and take away that heart that says, off with you, God. I don't want anything to do with you. I will live life on my terms. And he can plant within you a heart that now loves God. He can create in you a new heart. Baptize you with the spirit of the new creation in such a way that the Holy Spirit himself comes to dwell within you and you begin to delight in God's ways. A spiritual heart transplant, something truly new. Now, as John the Baptist points to Jesus Christ to say, here is the long-awaited one to usher in this whole new age. Here, here is the one, here is the one who can, who can take away the sin of the world. And he did it. He did it by going to the cross. And here is the one who opens up the way to, to a whole new creation. As he rised triumphant from the grave in resurrection power. Here is the one who will usher in as God's Christ. His kingdom with all sin banished and removed. Here is the one who can cleanse you and wash you, and, and do a work on your heart. I, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of change that I need, and it is the kind of change I'm looking for. My sin taken away. Not just overlooked, but dealt with in full. Canceled. Washed clean by the blood of the lamb, so that before the eyes of God, I am as spotless as the lamb of God. Changed by God, new heart, God within me, a whole new future open before me with King Jesus, with all of my sin taken away forever. Life with God in the land that he promises to his people, which is nothing less and a new heavens, and a new earth. Friends, this is something available to each and every one of us by trusting in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who is the Son of God, who can cleanse you, who can change you. Trust in him. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we... We do praise you that the Lord Jesus has made a full sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We praise you that he is the one qualified to wipe away the sin of this whole world and to usher in a new creation. We praise you that he, that he can do that for us personally as we come to him in faith. And we praise you for the the promise to enter into our lives and to make your home within us by the Spirit of God. And we pray that you would perform this miracle in any here who have yet to receive a, a new heart that beats for you and causes us to follow after King Jesus. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.